On this week's prequel episode, we follow up on our Parent Trap listener polls, learn about folklore, and preview Robin Hood. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. Katie, we got a full episode. We're going to get right into it with our patron shoutouts. I put up with you because your father and mother were our finest patrons, that's why. We have one new patron this week, and they're an Academy Award winner at the $15 level, Vic Dangerously. What a name. <laughs> Thank you, Vic Dangerously, and your secret agent name. Uh, appreciate you supporting us at the $15 level. Vic has already sent in their request. I'm not telling you what it is yet. That'll be a reveal down the road when we get to it. Uh, I don't know exactly how soon we'll get to it, but it you know goes into the queue as uh, all of our Academy Award winning patrons requests do. So thank you, Vic, for supporting us. And as always, our Academy Award winning patrons are Vic Dangerously, Matilde, Steve from Arizona, Paul, Kat Ensminger, Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Youngs, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby's watching season two of Shadow and Bone. I think when you're listening to this, it's still not quite out yet, so she's a liar, unless she got an early <laughs> screener. It, does it come out sooner in Canada? Oh, I don't think so. No, I don't <laughs> think so. I think I think I believe it premieres this Friday, mm. which would make it yeah, I think it's the seventeenth is when it comes out. Mm. So just jumping the gun a little bit, getting that name change in early. That darn skag, V Frank, and Alina Starkov. Speaking of Shadow and Bone. Thank you all very much for supporting us. As always, you're truly the best. Katie, let's see what the people had to say about the parent trap. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Alrighty. Well, on Patreon, we had four votes for the movie, two for the book, and one listener who couldn't decide. By Tove, exclamation mark, said... Although I haven't read the book, I'm still going to vote for the movie. I grew up on the 1961 version, and the Lindsay Lohan remake feels like an homage to the original movie, especially considering the points raised in Is That in the Book? It's shocking to me that the prank war wasn't in the book, considering how prominent it is in both movies. In the 1961 version, Annie is the precursor to the Hollywood California girl, while Hallie comes from a polite, waspy Boston society. Annie bullies her immediately because of how similar they look, and Hallie initially brushes her off. Annie starts the prank war, and Hallie uses her cabin mates to escalate. It culminates in a very fr- fun brawl-slash-food fight at the camp dance where boys from a local boys' camp are invited. The girls are then marched by the whole camp to the isolation cabin in a kind of parade with all the girls whistling... With all the girls whistling a Carl King march, where they figure out their shared parentage. In my mind, camp scenes make up for how little the girls show up later on. The rest of the film follows the parents immediately picking up their old feud while showing the audience that they haven't moved on in the slightest, and the bickering makes the girls' prank war feel like a minor disagreement. Although I went to religious summer camps in middle school, I don't remember there being an isolation cabin. I think disobedient kids were threatened with being sent home early. At the camp I went to, activities were usually too structured around worship services and activities to get into much trouble. That's not the tale I've heard of, <laughs> of, of Bible camps, but... <laughs> 
It feels like the remake was pulling more inspiration from the older movie than the original book, down to the POV shot of a gecko on a water bottle that you see in the 1998 trailer. Unfortunately, I missed most of Lindsay Lohan's movies growing up, but I'll definitely check this one out now. I think all the plot elements mentioned that weren't in the book were in the 1961 version, including the pool scene reveal, grandpa discovering what's going on, mom accidentally crashing dad and Vicky's wedding, Vicky feels like the Baroness in The Sound of Music, definitely. Uh, the recreated date night at an Italian place called Martinelli's, the ultimatum by the girls to take them camping, mom duping the girls last minute so that Vicky replaces her, the girls using their camp prank experiences to drive Vicky off, and Annie playing dumb and assuming they're adopting Vicky before roasting him and insulting her for marrying a child. Okay, so yeah, thank you for that for sure, because that definitely answers a lot of questions in terms of mm -hmm. how much was pulled from the <laughs> yeah. the original Disney movie, which sounds like basically everything. This is truly a remake of yeah that sure. movie as opposed to a like new fresh adaptation of the book or mm -hmm. something like that. It kind of sounds like so interesting yeah for sure uh it's very cool to know that yeah like i said we did not get to watch that one so no but our i feel like our episode still kind of works yeah, for the still, it works for both of them basically yeah absolutely <laughs> Um, Charlene said, I agree. It's definitely more of an oh. homage to the 61 movie than an adaptation of the that book. That thing I just said. Yep. Yes. <laughs> didn't realize that. Okay. I only saw the 61 version once or twice as a kid and didn't have any real attachment to it. And I was still impressed by how the 98 version stayed true to so much of it, but updated it. I like that we see the parents get back together in the 61 movie. It's just heavily implied if I remember correctly. 61 movie did the haircut, but then 98 ups the ante with the ear piercing. The clever script updates, the improved technology, and just the charm of all the actors involved make the 98 movie one of my favorite movie oh. remakes of all time. There you go. Steve from Arizona said, To me, this whole story feels like a thriller rather than a kid's film. I'm surprised we've not had a critical reevaluation of this film like that atrocious movie Passengers. Imagine the sequel to this, The Parent Trap 2, The Girls Go to Therapy. I would not want to be around when they hit that rebellious high school girl phase. I mean, there's definitely, as we mentioned in the episode, there's, there's, the custody situation is truly yeah. unhinged and would definitely, you would think, would result in some <laughs> level of... Uh, <laughs> you know, trust issues or something right. that, that would be going and on. I, and I definitely, you know, see people talk about that yeah. in different places online. I think people aren't necessarily critically reevaluating this movie because I think the movie knows yes. that it's silly. Yes. The movie works as is. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the difference with Passengers, which I have not seen, but I've heard talk of and I know like what Steve is referring to in terms of critical reevaluation in the sense that I don't know if you know anything about that movie. A little bit, yeah. It's a movie where Chris Pratt wakes up on a spaceship and then wakes up uh, Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah. And, and it's revealed eventually, and it's played as like a romance, but it turns it like it, when you really think about it and kind of get down to the nuts and bolts, it's like this really deeply unsettling story about this dude who like violates her like consent and like brings her, uh, you know, wakes her up um because they're like in hypersleep or whatever mm -hmm. and and wakes her up and where they're just gonna live and die together without you know he kind of like falls in love with her and it's like this weird stalkery like kind of a horror story really um but the movie presents it fully romantically mm -hmm. and whatever again from what i have heard i've not seen uh the film but i think where that 
the difference between this and Parent Trap is the Parent Trap works on its face, also understands, like, understands that, yes, that it is kind of silly and ridiculous and that this would, but they it knows all that. It's just like, that's the, like, just to, okay, just take that and put it aside. <laughs> We're just doing this for the fun story. Um, and then, and also it just works on its own, whereas Passengers, from everything I've heard, just does not work as the romantic mm-hmm. comedy it's or whatever it's supposed to be uh, presented as. Um, but potentially could work were it re, you know, edited mm-hmm. as a slightly darker, more sinister kind of story. Uh, whereas this one works as it is, so it doesn't need that like re contextualizing or whatever. Um, and our last, I believe, yes, our last comment on Patreon was from Matilde, who said, First off, thanks for doing one of my recommendations. I fully expect most will vote for the movie, especially English speaking people, for a reason I'll explain below. Personally, it's not an easy choice, but I have to go with the book. The movie is probably top tier in this genre and one of the few of this kind that I happily rewatch any day. It's a Hollywoodized version of the story, but I'll agree it's more streamlined and clear. It's got great pacing, beautiful sets, and of course the cast is A+. Dennis Quaid in particular has never been more charming than in this movie. Very much the original (laughs) Dilf. I don't know if he's the OG. That's <laughs> discounting a lot of old Hollywood, I feel like. But uh, yeah, fair. But. I get your point, yes. Uh, I'm a little For annoyed. our generation, I guess. Yes. Yeah. I'm a little annoyed at some superficial details, like the random things they have in common, um, like both liking Oreos and peanut butter, the lockets that you mentioned, etc. I prefer how different the girls are in the book. It makes more sense that they would have developed different tastes being raised in such different environments. I also didn't like that both parents are super rich. It does work for the movie, makes it dreamy and idealistic and very Disney, but I miss the contrast between the Munich and Vienna scenes. I don't think I can be any kind of objective when it comes to the book. Without going into details, it has many parallels with my own family situation and my childhood. It's more than a story for me. My sister and I read the book so many times, it's in literal pieces, and we basically know it by heart. Beyond that attachment, even rereading it as a more level-headed adult, I still love it. I love the narration, having the switch of perspectives to several secondary characters, even the dog at one point. That is not in the English version. Really? I was going to say, you did not mention (laughs) that. If it was, it was so brief that I didn't even, like, really clock it. Didn't register, yeah. Um... I love the random vignettes and detours in the book. It gives a personal and heartfelt vibe. It feels like a life and not a story, and I find that comforting. I was very surprised when Katie read a passage from the book. I read it in French. My German is too basic even for a children's book. So I don't know how the original stands, but I can say this. You lost a lot in the English translation. In French, it is so much richer than the English one, even in just the few lines I heard. There are more details, very funny rhythm and construction, and the narration as a whole is so lively and entertaining. It's all very different from regular huh. kids' books, which is what the English version sounds like. The writing style was always my favorite aspect of the book, and I still quote many lines to this day. I so wish you could have experienced it. It might have had an impact on your final verdict. P.S. As for the adults forcing the twins to be friends at camp, I think it's just the kind of drama some adults will try to create to entertain themselves. I mean, you're not wrong. Fair there. enough. That's, fair. That's very fair. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we, we've talked before about how uh, recently about translations mm-hmm. and about how difficult it can be. Oh, yeah. Keep, translating well, is, is not we, easy. What it was I think we, we just, talked about was that it was a while ago. We I think we talked about translations when we did um, The NeverEnding Story, maybe. 
Maybe. No, we, we, we had a very, we, we just, I, I don't mean like we talked about it at length. I just mean it came up in an ep. I, I might even have been like Chocolat or not. Yeah. Or something like, which was that French or no, no, that was written in English. Okay. There was something I could have swore like much more recently than never ending story that we like very briefly touched on translations and I, it doesn't, I, matter, I don't really. remember. Um, but I, I, could, I just could have swore there was something within the last, I don't know, mm-hmm. three or four months that we, that we had discussed that, that revolved around translation to some extent. If not, either way, point being, we've discussed before how translations can be very difficult and how you can lose a lot of meaning Yeah, in translations because nothing translates directly. Right. Well, and it sounds like this one lost a lot of spice and yes. flavor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so that is really interesting to hear because, yeah, I think that it would be it's one of those things that you really can't. With something like that, with what Matilda's saying, how, you know, there's so much to the rhythm and the and the style of mm-hmm. how it's written in French, at least. And, and Matilda's not even, you know, because it's originally in German. Right. Um, and so there's there's probably even something different there. But it's interesting that it would translate at least fairly well to French. Mm-hmm. But not unless maybe the French person added some, <laughs> some creative <laughs> stylings to the translation. It's possible. But it's interesting um, it would translate so well to French uh, and, and not to English. It's also possible that the version I read is just a bad translation. It could also just be a bad translation. Maybe there is a better version, you know? Maybe yeah. maybe it's more of a direct translation that doesn't take... Because that is a big thing, because that's what I remember discussing, is, you know, when you're doing those translations, it's not always about just directly translating exactly what the words mean. Mm-hmm. There is, you like, good translations will take into account things like rhythm and... Yeah, and style. Uh, and style and, and thematically what something is trying to say versus directly what it's saying. Like, sometimes if, if there's, like, an idiom in a language yeah. that we don't have... Yeah, and that can be really tricky. It, well, yeah. Like translating things like idioms and metaphors that don't always have the same connotation in, in different... different cultures. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's really interesting, but that's yeah. that's fascinating. So that's interesting um, and unfortunate that my French is too basic, even yeah. for a children's book. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah, I could not <laughs> could not handle it at all. Um, over on Facebook, we had three votes for the movie and two for the book. Um, Sarah said, "This is probably one of the movies I watched most throughout my childhood. The camp scenes at the beginning were my favorite. I used to beg my parents to let me go to a camp like that." It never happened. I agree with Katie and always thought it was weird that mom and dad met and got married on the same cruise. After the wedding dress photo session scene, Annie, as Hallie, asked her mom where she met their father, her father, and mom explains it was on the ship. Mm. They might not have gotten married the day they met, but it would have been within the yeah. same trip. So at most, you know, a few weeks yeah. tops. Like most cruises are like, a, you know, three weeks usually. And like a tops. great explanation for why they got divorced. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, Sarah went on to say, also, I never got queer vibes from Hallie. I always interpreted it as that's just how young, laid back California teens talked. Babe was a friendly term of endearment. I agree. Like I said, yeah, we're, totally we're at that fair. one thing. I would not have because, I, like I said, each each of the things independently was mm-hmm. something that I would be like on its own. I wouldn't have said that, but it was the accumulation of those events. But yeah, I, that's definitely right. well. And I think it's kind of a good opportunity to pre- briefly bring up, you know, when you're looking at a piece of media through a critical lens. Yeah. Right. When you're looking at like something like a queer theory mm-hmm. lens, which is basically what you did when you were talking in a yes. very basic way i will say i did not remotely go in 
planning to do. Like, it was just what I kind of got. Yeah. Yeah. But when you are looking at a piece of media through a lens like that, that's not the same thing as saying, like, oh, if you do these things. Yes. That means that you're queer right or, and, and you know. i'm not yeah I, I, I would stress that i i'm not saying that for sure that that she, she, her character is or was supposed to be or it was even like yeah. remotely you know um I, I think tons of people get totally different interpretations out of that and like i said mm-hmm. I, I think each of those things independently i i, I would never have and, and especially younger i never would have even i've said i've seen this movie a handful of times never once even thought about any of that stuff again the accumulation of multiple different scenes that was where I, I came to that, like, kind of, I don't know if realization is the right word, but, like, you know, yeah. appraisal of it. Uh, that, that yeah. I think independently, none of those things mean anything. And, yeah, it doesn't necessarily. It's just kind of how. Yeah, it's, it's just a, a lens through which to look at a piece of media. It yep. doesn't really equal the real life. No. Um, over on Twitter, we had 10 votes for the movie, zero for the book, and one listener who couldn't decide. Kelly Napier said, hi, former camp counselor here. We were never allowed to leave the kids alone, so we never would have put them in an isolation cabin. Kids with disciplinary issues at my camp were stuck in the health lodge for the day with the camp nurse, kind of like an in-school suspension. Also, I voted for the movie. For women of a certain age, this movie is so ingrained in our minds, it's like a sense memory. Mm-hmm. True. And yeah, that doesn't surprise me about the uh, your experience as a camp counselor. I would yeah. not, I, that would that falls in line with what I would have expected, right? No, and I think I said in the episode, like it definitely feels more like a movie trope. Yeah, but I just really wanted to know from somebody well, who went to one of those camps. And now that we know it came from the '60s, right? I could see it being a thing potentially more likely pre '90. You know, potentially back, back yeah. then. I'm not saying it would would have happened back then, but. Uh, but Kelly feels, is not yeah. Kelly was not a child in the, or a camp counselor in the sixties. I'm pretty sure. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm joking. I know you're not a camp counselor in the sixties. So like my point being that it wouldn't surprise me if that was maybe something that could have happened back then. It definitely feels more plausible in yeah. 1961 than in 1998. Yes. Uh, whereas it obviously in 1998 that never, yeah, almost yeah. never would have been impossible to happen. Our other comment on Twitter was from Amanda Price who said, I actually love both movies. The old school one is a bit dated, but Haley Mills was great, and Lindsay Lohan in the newer version was just stunning. There is a reason why she became a movie darling for quite a while. Very talented actress, yeah. Absolutely. Um, Over on Instagram, we had 14 votes for the movie and two for the book. Anal Fracture 42 said i'm not too fond of either it's just not my type of story i respect the book a bit more though it is still extremely popular here in germany especially for younger people longevity wins out for me and actually yes lisa lottie is a name in german it is more or less reserved for older people though not popular anymore yeah Um, interesting and i will say too in the book, uh, they spelled it literally like the two names smashed together. Like with an like, A? Yeah, like L-I-S-A-L-O-T-T-I-E. Yeah. And anal fracture here has yeah. it spelled L-I-S-E-L-O-T-T-E. Which looks more which like Which looks name. a lot yeah. more like a name yes. and not like something that the author just randomly decided yeah. to do. Which may also be the translation yes, thing. Where, that's, yes. Because when there's, yeah, so that, that could be another one of those things. But yeah, that looks a lot more like an actual yeah name than <laughs> Lisa and Lottie as written on the cover of the book smashed together. Yeah. 
Um, so uh, just a real quick uh, anal fracture. If you can respond, uh, just comment on this prequel episode. If you hear this is or anybody who's German or, you know, or knows uh, were the names are Lisa and Lottie both common or somewhat relevant, you know, mm-hmm. somewhat normal like names in Germany. Like those two names on their own. So yeah, that's, also, that's like, also a good question. Yeah, like yeah. are those two names on their own? I assume they are. I would imagine. I would that, think. Yeah, I, I, it, I mean, Lisa, neither one of those. Lisa, me as I strange. imagine, would translate to Liesel. Maybe. I like know. Uh, one of the sisters in The Sound of Music. Oh, uh, okay. One? Yeah. 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 So that would make sense. Okay. Yeah, and then Lottie. I mean, I've heard people named Lottie. I yeah. feel like before. So I'm sure those are. I just wondering because yeah, that interesting. Okay. Um, and then uh, just for transparency's sh- uh, sake, Instagram shows that there's a comment on the like poll post, mm-hmm. like in the feed. Most people respond to the story um, right. when they're responding to us, but it does show a comment, but I can't access it when I click on it. There's nothing, um, I, which I that could mean that it's stuff. like a spam thing or maybe somebody commented and, and then deleted, deleted it. it. Yeah. But uh, if that was a real comment and we're missing it, um, my apologies. I, yes. I, I literally can't see it. <laughs> How did we end up on this one? Uh, well, our winner was the movie with 31 votes to the books six plus our two listeners who couldn't decide that doesn't surprise me Uh, that's one of those ones where you know especially with our listener base where a lot of primarily americans Mm -hmm. who didn't grow up with the book yeah probably not in the same way that a lot of people in europe probably did um and so yeah it wouldn't it doesn't surprise me at all that that the movie because the movie we all you know especially people in our age range definitely did grow up with it was Mm -hmm. kind of a you know, a very popular movie for our age range, uh, as Kelly mentioned earlier. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Fantastic. Thank you all for commenting and for voting. We appreciate it so much. Make sure you do that on every prequel episode so we can hear what y'all have to say. Katie, it's time now to learn a little bit about folklore. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. So I was recently talking with a friend um, who asked me, what the difference was between folklore and fairy tales. It's an interesting question that I never really considered, but... Um, And that question naturally sent me down a research (laughs) rabbit hole. Yes. And I I thought it might be fun to have a learning things segment discussing the difference, actually, between three terms that are sometimes used interchangeably, um, folklore, mythology, and legends. Hmm. Okay. So, like I just said, all of those terms are often used interchangeably, Um, That's because there is a lot of overlap. Mm -hmm. Now, technically, the last two of those terms, myths and legends, fall under the umbrella of folklore. So that's where we're going to start. So folklore is a collection of artifacts that encompasses the traditions and beliefs of a particular culture. Now, that can include tales, i.e. folk tales, um, myths, legends, proverbs, poems, jokes, songs, Anything that falls within the oral tradition. Mm-hmm. So folklore is quite literally the lore of the folk. It is in the name, to yes. be fair. It's pretty um, self-explanatory in that, that It is. It's <laughs> the lore that defines a culture. Yeah. Now, folklore also includes customary lore, which are the actions that follow a culture's beliefs. For example, wedding rituals and holiday traditions. Okay. So that would kind of generally we would categorize that stuff under like traditions. Like cultural mm-hmm. traditions. Yeah. So, yeah. But it is part of the yes. folklore umbrella. Yes. Yeah. 
So now that we've established our umbrella term, let's move on to defining mythology. So mythology can be defined as any narrative that plays a foundational role within a culture, like a story that explains how the world was created, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, stories explaining the origins or the exploits of deities, um, stories that explain something about the natural world. For example, in Greek mythology, you have the story of the abduction of Persephone to the underworld, which explains why the seasons change. Yeah. Right. Or the story of uh, the uh, the chariot. I was thinking mm-hmm. of this is Egypt. Or whatever the whoever it might be Greek whoever chases the I think both Egyptian and the Greek similar have a chariot, the chariot yeah. chasing carrying the sun mm-hmm. across the sky or whatever yeah. that kind, that kind of stuff right yeah. right it's an an explanation yeah. of something that happens or obviously you know Zeus thunderstorms Zeus boom yeah. there you go another way to understand mythology or to define it is that it encompasses stories that are about the supernatural right your gods your demigods any other supernatural figures, anything outside the realm of humanity. Mm -hmm. Now, in direct contrast to mythology, you have legends. Legends are folktales that are about human actions, whereas mythology is very much rooted in the fantastic. Legends are often either believed or perceived to have actually taken place. Now, if you're having trouble wrapping your mind around that, consider the legend's modern younger sibling urban legends the thing that makes an urban legend fun and interesting is that both the teller and the listener suspend their disbelief for it right yeah it totally happened to my friend's cousin's classmate yes and it could happen to you yeah well and i was so 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 to me something that would be like a legend would be like like an example that comes to my mind and and maybe you're going to go into some examples here i don't know but the example of a legend that would come to my mind would be like the legend of achilles Achilles is, I think, as far as we know, a real historical person, probably, I think. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe that borders more into I would say that borders more into mythology. (laughs) I think of a different example then. Well, I mean, because we know the war. So because 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 I was thinking of (laughs) Troy, because obviously the. The Trojan War took place. Yes, we the know, Trojan War happened, which we didn't realize for a long time. Apparently, that was like a thing we thought right, might have been mythology. The, the accounts we have of it are mythologized accounts. Yes, but it, it did happen, and so that, I was trying to, there, maybe I'll have a different example then, because I I thought because so my point was going to be that like the idea of like a legend would be like Achilles, assuming let's say there was some dude that Achilles, the story of Achilles is based on. There's the legend of Achilles of like his this whole mythical thing of him having, you know, the mm-hmm. one weakness and blah, blah, blah. It was an actual dude, maybe, but maybe, maybe again, in this <laughs> sense, we're for, for the sake of what I'm trying to say, let's just assume that Achilles is based. The story of Achilles is based on a real guy, mm-hmm. you know, who fought at, at, in the Trojan War or whatever. And it, like was like the biggest, you know, the most famous warrior for uh, whoever um, Greece. No. Boy, I don't remember. It's been a while since I've I'm seen Troy. I'm going to be honest. I'm not well, as well versed in this. It's been a while since I I've tra- seen Troy. Anyways, point being, so you, like that would be my example of a legend would be like if there was a real person, but now we have some like surroundings, like it, the story has been told enough times that it has become this thing that nobody really knows what's true and what isn't about that. Is yeah. that, you I know mean, what I mean? Yeah, like, that's one way that you can look at a legend. Yeah, yes. so that's kind of what I'm saying. Like, so assuming that Achilles was, and I get, you know, 
not to <laughs> hopefully not to offend anybody, but like maybe Jesus would be another good example. Uh, maybe a more like concrete example, because we know there was probably some dude who who the stories of Jesus are based upon, or at least a, maybe a group of people who the stories of Jesus is based upon. Um, the stories have grown and evolved in a way where we don't really know necessarily what is true and what is not about what is we know about the life of Jesus is kind of evolved into this like sort of legend of the life of Jesus. But we do know it is grounded in something real, whereas the story of mm -hmm. Thor right. is completely well, holy. That's part of the other reason that I say there's a lot of overlap yes. between these terms, because, you know, I was thinking about like King Arthur is another example, right? Like that's, that's something example, yeah. that's like historically grounded, but it has grown into this like thing that's been mythologized. Okay. Right. Yes. Sorry. I, I'm, I'm okay. Sorry. <laughs> I may have, I may have jumped ahead on your notes. No, it's know. good. Okay. Um, so Back to legends. Um, the Brothers Grimm defined legend as folktale historically grounded, which is kind of what kinda we were what just talking saying. about. Um, so Robin Hood, that's an example of a legend. Of uh, The Ballad of Mulan, example of a legend. Uh, the story of Lady Godiva. Um, Lady Godiva we know was a real person, but that story has about her has like transcended into right. legend, right? Um, both Robin Hood and Mulan, some scholars believe, like, could be grounded in grains of truth, but as legends, they loom very large, both in and out of their respective cultures. Right. Um, so now I want to talk really quickly about a couple folklore, like, subgenres that bridge the gap between myth and legend. Um, so we're going to cover fables, tall tales, and fairy tales okay. real quick. Um, so fables are stories that feature supernatural elements, kind of similar to mythology, but similar to legends, they operate on a somewhat like less grand scale. So you have like Aesop's fables feature talking animals, but they're about human morality. Right. Uh, Headless Horseman is another example. That's a story that's about human foibles, but it features a supernatural being as a plot element. Mm -hmm. Now, tall tales are a type of fable that are based in exaggeration. Um, tall tales, they're not unique to American folklore, but they do feature heavily within it. Yeah. Um, so figures like John Henry and Johnny Appleseed, as well as more obviously exaggerated figures like Paul Bunyan are examples of tall tales. Yeah, and that's kind of one where those feel a lot more like what I would call like a legend or whatever, mm -hmm. like kind of that idea where, yeah, it's based on something vaguely maybe real-ish, <laughs> but like has been, you know, turned into this yeah. like larger than life story in the subsequent years or whatever in retellings. Now, the term fairy tale is a little more complicated. Fairy tales can refer specifically to stories about the fae from like Celtic and other mythologies, but that's not really how we use the term today. Mm -mm. Um, in modernity, when we say fairy tale, we generally mean a story that comes from folklore, but that has been packaged and commodified for consumption. Um, fairy tales often do feature supernatural elements like magic or mythological creatures, but they don't necessarily have to. And like fables, fairy tales are usually more focused on humanity, even when they do feature fantastical elements. So you definitely focus more on humanity. I, and I don't mean to put you on the spot. Can you, do you know of an example of a fairy tale that doesn't like include some some element of magic or mythological creatures or something 
You really put me on the spot. I know, here. and I'm sorry, but it just I when you said that, I was like, well, to me, that seems... That's why I asked the question, because to me, it feels like the magic element of it feels like central to what I would consider a fairy tale. At least some, even if it's, it can be very small, like it could be a single thing. Like if, you know, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example of a small, uh, but like if there was like even like a story where like, like, let's say, and this isn't, you know, exactly the thing, but like if it were something like Sleeping Beauty and let's say the only thing in the whole story that was or maybe not sleeping be snow white the only thing in the story that was magical at all was that mm -hmm. she ate a, an, a poisoned apple that put her into like a deep sleep or whatever and then she was awoken from that sleep but apart from that there was no other magic like i think the magic element of a fairy tale could be small but to me it almost feels like an integral to the story but you're saying you don't think it needs to be i don't think it needs to be integral Right. I think you can have like Snow White, for example, there are some older versions of Snow White where the apple is not poisoned mm -hmm. and she's not awoken magically with a kiss. She's awoken when they're carrying her away and somebody trips and then a, the piece of apple falls out of her mouth like she was like like it was stopping her from breathing, which I guess is I, which I wouldn't really consider magic so much as like a misunderstanding of how that works. <laughs> Oh, I mean, if it, if the story implies that it's, I mean, I would agree with you. If the story implies that it, she was asphyxiating or something, yes. then then sure, I, I yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, if that that would be an example, I guess. I I I don't know. That's why I was asking because I wasn't sure if there were. And again, I'm not. Yeah, I was mm -hmm. just I was just wondering because I I I couldn't think of an idea uh, in my head. I couldn't think of anything that I would consider a fairy tale that didn't have at least some element of like magic in it. Again, whatever that may be, as little or you know, small or as big as that is, I just, I don't know, nothing came into my head of like, oh, well, that's, a, I would call that a fairy tale, but it's like completely like grounded in reality. Right. And I, I guess I'm, I'm assuming you're looking for like an older example. No, I'm because, not looking for any example. Because there are plenty of modern retellings of Cinderella that completely rewrite out the magic. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess that's yeah, and I guess you could still call it a fairy tale. Yeah, I and I, I guess I've never seen one of those. <laughs> I don't. Know. We literally watched one last year. What? Ever after? Has no wait. Is there no magic in that one? There is no magic in that one. Are you sure? Yes, I'm positive. I don't remember that. I don't remember. <laughs> she she meets Leonardo da Vinci. That's right. You're right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, okay, yeah, that's fair. It's totally fair. That's why that's what I was asking for. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay, fair enough. Because to me, I like it's just the name, it feels, you know, self-implied. Fairy tale, it needs some sort of fairy or something. And again, fairy being a broad term for like magic. But yeah, no, I uh, I, I would consider Ever After still a fairy tale. And it, yeah, it doesn't have any magic. Again, it has things that like border on like fantastical, mm -hmm. but not like magic per se. So, okay, fair enough, fair enough. All right, well, that's actually the end of my segment. Mm -hmm. um, we've, we've defined all of our terms, so good place to jump to our, our next segment. Yes, which is learning about the story Robin Hood. Soon, the world's best-loved legend achieves its brightest, most colorful dimension when it comes to the screen in total animation from Walt Disney Productions. Yay, Dad! Help! 
Robin Hood. Right in, my love. And all Sherwood Forest celebrated characters. But now they're members of the animal kingdom. And what characters? Robin's a roguish fox. We got him now! Robin Hood is a legendary heroic outlaw that originally comes from English folklore. Uh, now, because the Robin Hood legends obviously come from the oral tradition, we don't really know, like, absolutely for sure how old the stories are. Um, what we do know are the approximate dates of the first written references mm -hmm. to Robin Hood. Um, so we have the alliterative poem Piers Plowman, um, which is thought to have been published sometime in the 1370s. That's what it's called? That's not who wrote it, right? Nope, that's okay. what it's called. It's called <laughs> Piers Plowman. It's okay. about a plowman. Um, and it references the rhymes of Robin Hood within the poem. Hmm. Uh, there are two references that appear in works then from sometime in the early 1400s. Uh, the alliterative poem Friar Dawes Reply quotes a proverb, quote, many men speak of Robin Hood and never shot his bow, which is a proverb that I think we should bring back. I'm going to start saying that. I, I assume the idea there being that, you know, a lot of people talk a big game but aren't. Yeah. This is kind of the implication. Yeah. They, like they speak because the way that's worded, like read from a modern context, doesn't really like it took me a second to wrap my brain around what that was saying. Mm -hmm. Like many men speak of Robin Hood, but never and never shot his bow. It's like, what? Well, they're just talking about him. Why would they need to have shot his bow? Yeah, it's like, the implication being like yeah. many men, many men will say that they're Robin Hood or that they're this badass or whatever, but they're not yeah. actually because they've Talk never shot a big his game, bow. but yes. your actions can't back it right. up. Yes. It just took me a minute to wrap my head around <laughs> it because, again, the way it's written doesn't necessarily follow for modern uh, parlance. Uh, and then from around that same time period, there's a religious commentary called Dives and Pauper that recorded the complaint that people would rather listen to, quote, tales and songs of Robin Hood than attend mass. Nobody like, has ever changed. Yeah, bro. Society is <laughs> the same as always. Kids um. these days. Uh. <laughs> But the earliest surviving copies of the narrative ballads that tell the story of Robin Hood date to roughly the second half of the 15th century. Um, so these are like actual written recordings, mm -hmm. right? And these ballads contain elements that are familiar to a modern audience, uh, such as Robin's skill as an archer and his partisanship to the poor, as well as characters like Little John and the Sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, other well-known characters, for example, Friar Tuck and Maid Marian, don't appear until later versions of the legend. Other elements that don't appear until the 16th century, um, or another element, rather, that doesn't appear until the 16th century is uh, Robin Hood as a contemporary of King Richard Lionheart and his brother John. Mm. So that's not in, like, the OG ballads. Right. That comes along later. Interesting. While the earliest surviving records of Robin Hood legends are narrative ballads, like I said, uh, over the next couple centuries, the most common media for the legends actually was plays and dramatic works. Uh, you could go see a Robin Hood play, mm -hmm. right? A performance. Uh, Robin Hood also became popularly associated with May Day celebrations around this time uh, with revelers dressing as characters from the stories, huh. um, like a ye olde Ren Fair. Yeah. <laughs> With the advent of the printing press, 
cheaply made broadsides became the next vehicle for the Robin Hood ballads. And though that era's stories were more like farcical in nature, they were kind of silly than the previous tales were. Uh, they also introduced the character Alan Adale, the minstrel. I don't know enough about Robin Hood to know. Um, I, I know Friar Tuck and Little John and Maid Marian and the, the sheriff. The rooster character in the Disney movie. I have not seen the Disney movie. have a sticker of him right there. Oh, I have not <laughs> seen. I, I It's good times to say it. I have not seen the Disney's Robin Hood. Or if I have, I saw it when I was so like, young that I kid. do not remember anything okay. about it. I literally, this is one of those that I... No, no, I remember nothing about. In 1795, the legends were repopularized by antiquarian Joseph Ritson, who collected all of these various legends in a compilation titled Robin Hood, a collection of all the ancient poems, songs, and ballads now extant relative to that celebrated outlaw. That's the whole title? That's the whole title. Good, good. I love a long title. <laughs> I, I love a long title, too. 18th century titles are great. <laughs> we were just joking about this the other day. We were watching Townsend's uh, 18th century cooking, and the, they, he showed a cookbook, and that cookbook's title was like 800 words yeah. long. Well, it's like the sentences yeah. of the same era, where it's actually like eight sentences strung together with semicolons. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So good. Um, so Ritson. we were figuring out writing still. We were, <laughs> we, you uh, know, we were, uh, you're saying that as a joke, but we really, no, we, we really, really were. were. Yeah. Shakespeare we really hadn't were. come along and said brevity is the soul of wit yet. Or I guess he had I, he been had. along at this point, but <laughs> not everybody had taken the hearts. Brevity is the soul of wit yet. <laughs> was that Shakespeare? I don't know. I think it was maybe, right? probably. Are you looking it up? Yes. <laughs> okay, then brevity I'm is the soul wait. of wit was said by. Shakespeare. It's from Hamlet. So there you go. 1603. Been a solid like 12 years since I read Hamlet. Yeah. Okay. So Ritson's interpretation of Robin Hood was very influential moving forward uh, and influencing the modern concept of stealing from the rich and giving to the poor as it exists today. Mm -hmm. Now, like I mentioned earlier, the idea that he was like a patron to the poor and the lower classes has like always existed. But this specific idea, as we understand it now, of like rob the rich to feed the poor right. comes from Ritson. Okay. Um, Ritson was a supporter of the French Revolution and he held that Robin Hood was a heroic character who stood up against tyranny in the interests of the common people. Um, that was his, based his big thing. Yep. I would be careful calling anyone from history based. I know. <laughs> I, I, in that one specific context. <laughs> probably also an anti-Semite. I don't, I, I don't know, whatever. I don't know. Almost assuredly. Almost yes. assuredly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, in the 19th century, the Robin Hood legend began to be specifically adapted for children. This was also right around the time when the Brothers Grimm began to repackage Germanic folklore as children's stories. It was the thing to do, apparently. Uh, one of the most popular versions for children was Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, which further influenced accounts of Robin Hood through the 20th century. This is also the book that I'm reading mostly because it was easily accessible. Okay. Uh, the historicity of Robin Hood has been debated for centuries. Uh, one difficulty with any such historical research um, about whether or not he was a real person is that Robert was a very common given name in medieval England, and Robin was its very huh. common diminutive. I didn't know that. Uh, the surname Hood was also fairly common because it referred to either a hooder 
uh, who was a maker of hoods, or right. it could alternatively refer to somebody who wore a hood as a head covering, yep. which if you've ever seen like a medieval painting, that was, that was a lot of people. Most people, Most people yep. wore hoods. Yep. Um, but there are several historical figures thought to possibly be the origin of the legend. Too many to get into yeah. with too much yeah. detail. But the most prominent is perhaps Roger Godbeard, uh, who was a 13th century outlaw that lived near Sherwood Forest and was openly critical of the ruling powers at the time. Huh. There you go. It has also been long suggested that Robin Hood was a stock alias used by thieves. That's what I had always kind of yeah. heard. Like, yeah. Um, and interestingly, from around like the 1260s onward, the names Robin Hood and a couple other like more Middle English variants yeah. on Robin Hood <laughs> yeah. um, occur in the roles of um, English justices as nicknames or descriptions of criminals. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, Robin Hood has continued to be a popular character and story moving into modernity and, as we know, is the frequent subject of movies and TV shows. Uh, enough of them for us to do a bracket. Yep. There are a few interesting additions to the legend coming from modern retellings. Um, one is that modern stories are more likely to make Robin Hood a hero on a national scale. Uh, for example, the 1938 Errol Flynn film had him leading the Saxons in a revolt against the Normans. Yeah, it's it's one of those that you see. It's often he gets yeah. turned into, yeah, like part of a revolution of mm -hmm. some sort or, yeah. He, he kind of gets drug. at least uh, it seems like one of those things where it's like he's like the Han Solo, you know. Kinda, yeah. He's like a, a ne'er-do-well <laughs> who gets like drug into this larger. That's a classic story trope anyway. So, right. Yeah. Uh, during the 1980s, it became common to include an Arab or Muslim character among the Merry Men, um, starting with the character Nasir in the 1984 TV series Robin of Sherwood, uh, and eventually becoming common enough to be spoofed in media like Robin Hood Men in Tights and the BBC sitcom Maid Marian and Her Merry Men. Yeah, and maybe most famously in Prince of Thieves, Morgan Freeman plays. Yeah, um, yes. I don't know his name because I've not, not seen the movie, but no, I know. But yes, that but I'm saying one, like one example of you, this. That yeah. may be the most famous example of Robin Hood having. A, yeah, that mm -hmm. was my point. Yeah. Uh, my last note here, because I absolutely had to include this in 1953 during when else but the McCarthy area mm. era, um, who else but a Republican um, who sat on uh, where else the Indiana textbook commission. <laughs> called for a ban of Robin Hood from all Indiana school <laughs> books course. for promoting communism because he stole from the rich yep. to give to the poor. Yep. What a communist. That is communism. That's the whole definition of it. <laughs> they nailed it. <laughs> Random Republican lawmaker from Indiana. <laughs> Their understanding of communism was as good back then as it is today. <laughs> all right. We're going to learn now a little bit more about Disney's Robin Hood. With the voice of Brian Bedford. Oh, God! Hey, watch it, Rob. That's the only hat I've got. And Phil Harris is Little John a bear. You know something, Robin, I was just wondering? Are we good guys or bad guys? You know, I mean, are Robin the rich to feed the poor? That's a naughty word. We never rob. I've been robbed. Of course you've been robbed! Here's a classic hilarious pair. Peter Ustinov as Prince John a lion. King Richard? I told you never to mention my brother's name. And Terry Thomas as his counselor, a snake. Much to the sorrow of the Queen Mother. Yeah, Mother. 
Mother always did like Richard best. Mm -mm 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 -mm. Well, Highness, please don't do that. Disney's Robin Hood is a 1973 film directed by Wolfgang Reitherman, who did The Aristocats, The Jungle Book, so a movie we've done already, The Sword in the Stone, and The Rescuers, among others. Uh, but those are probably the yeah. most famous ones. We also ones. did The Rescuers. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Uh, and David Hand for earlier clips, because this is in that era where Disney was reusing mm -hmm. lots of stuff. Uh, he directed Bambi and Snow White, and they reused, which I'll talk I, about. I, yeah, later. I know what they reused from Snow White. Yes. I'm not sure what got reused from I Bambi. I don't know if I wrote those notes down, but if I can look it up when we talk about in the main episode. If not, I know I wrote at least the details of some of it, but I don't know if I wrote all of the moments. Mm hmm. It came up a lot, and I and my eyes started glazing over because I found like a million <laughs> facts about it. Well, this scene was reused from, and I was just like, I don't, I'm not going to recount recount every single scene that was reused. But that's why David Hand is credited on IMDb as a director, even though he was not a director. Mm -hmm. He directed movies that they stole clips from. Uh, the film was written by Larry Clemens, who wrote The Rescuers, The Jungle Book, The Fox and the Hound, and The Aristocats. Ken Anderson, uh, who or he was credited as, I believe, story elements or character design and story elements or something like that, uh, who wrote on Cinderella, The Jungle Book, and Aristocats. And Vance Gary, who worked on The Great Mouse Detective, The Jungle Book, Hercules, and The Black Cauldron. Uh, there was also a bunch more credited writers who all were involved in different. Well, this was like in work for a long yes, time, and like different versions people, of this. Uh, they were all basically credited on IMDb for story sequences is what yeah. their writing credit was, which means they they helped write some part of the movie, basically, probably. Um, which I, I assume that like <laughs> guild guild rules were different back then about how people were credited. I have no idea. So. I just didn't include it. There was like 12 people yeah. <laughs> literally in the writing credits. I'm like, I'm not putting all these people in. Those were the three that those three that I listed were the three. When you click on IMDb's page that are listed before you click on all cast and crew, mm -hmm. then you get the rest of them. So there you go. The film stars Brian Bedford, Monica Evans, Phil Harris, Roger Miller, Andy Devine, Peter Ustinov, Terry Thomas, Carol Shelley, Pat Buttram, George Lindsay, and Ken Curtis, among others. Uh, a lot of those, if you know your Disney history, they have been in plenty other yeah. Disney films. I think Phil Harris and I, I think Pat Buttram were in like every Disney movie yes. from this A era. lot of these people were in all kinds of them. Yeah. Um, I believe I read a fact at some point that this is Monica Evans' final Disney film. But she was in. She might have even have been Snow White or something. She she was in. All, I don't know if that's the case. But she, all of these people had been in tons of Disney stuff mm -hmm. at this point, or most of them. The film has a fifty five percent on Rotten Tomatoes, a fifty seven percent on Metacritic, and a seven point five out of ten on IMDb, which I believe makes it the lowest rated Disney movie that's that wild. we've done. Hmm. I think does not have great reviews. Uh, again, cumulative Rotten Tomatoes mm -hmm. scores reviews. Uh, it made $33 million against a budget of $5 million, so a, you know, moderate success. During production on Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in 1937, so getting into the production of where this whole idea came from, Walt Disney wanted to adapt a uh, the 12th century legend of Reynard the Fox, apparently. Mm -hmm. um, however, that project didn't go anywhere. Uh, because Disney was worried that Raynaud was too was not a good choice for a hero because the, I don't know enough about Raynaud the fox, but apparently he's like he's like a trickster. Yeah, they thought it was maybe not like heroic enough yeah, of a character for enough. a kids movie. Yeah. Uh, so then in a, in a meeting in February of 1938, Disney said, I see swell possibilities in Raynaud, but is it smart to make it? We have such a terrific kid audience. 
parents and kids together. That's the trouble. Too sophisticated. We'll take a nosedive doing it with animals, end quote. Uh, then a decade, in the next decade after that, in the 40s, the studio decided to make Renaud the villain of a musical film uh, based on Chanticleer, the story Chanticleer, which is about a, a rooster, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember reading it, I think, in elementary school. Uh, but that movie ended up getting scrapped, and they made The Sword and the Stone instead. Then, in 1968, while on a fishing trip, Card Walker, who was an exec at Disney, suggested to Ken Anderson, who I mentioned earlier, who was list, one of the writing credits on this film, uh, that their next film at Disney, uh, after The Aristocats, should be based on a classic tale. Mm-hmm. He's like, we should make it, you know, based on a classic tale. And Anderson was like, we should do Robin Hood. And Walker was like, sweet, let's do it. <laughs> so, uh, War- uh, Anderson would go on to like kind of create, start working on the idea and the story and like coming up with the characters and that sort of thing. And they actually ended up reusing some of the character designs from the scrapped Raynaud yeah. story thing and kind of reworking stuff from what I was able to find. Apparently, some of the other ideas that Anderson had for the film was that he wanted it to be set in the Deep South because he wanted to recapture the spirit of Song of the South. Oh, woof. (laughs) Explaining, quote, Basically, I had a wonderful time on Song of the South, and I know that all of my friends in animation did. They loved the part I played, and I loved the part they played. And so it was an attempt on my part to to get the best of that sort of thing and get it going again, bring it up to date, end quote. However... Some executive with his brain screwed on, or his head screwed on, right, was a little bit wary of the reputation of Song in the South already at this point in 1968. Uh, And so uh, they followed that up by Reitherman uh, deciding that the movie, the uh, Wolfgang Reitherman, the director, um, deciding that the movie would be set in the traditional English, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, setting. Uh, and it would be inspired by the story of Robin Hood and his Merry Men, which is the 1952. Was yes. that the one you mentioned that you're reading? Or no, a different one? No, that's actually a movie. Oh, it's a movie. That's okay. A, yeah, it's a Disney movie, like a live action. Gotcha. Disney. Okay. It was on the bracket. It did not make it ah, very far in. Fair enough. As production went further along, it was documented in a book about uh, this era of Disney in a book called uh, Walt Disney in Europe. Robin Allen, the author of that book, <laughs> wrote that quote Ken Anderson wept when he saw how his character concepts had been processed into stereotypes for the animation on Robin Hood uh, so he, eventually they moved along and Ken Anderson was not as involved in production that's why he gets a writing credit um, but he wasn't like fully involved in the whole production uh, he basically kind of started the characters along and then they took him and ran with them and they changed a lot of his characters, and he was very upset about this. One of the changes that they made was that originally he drew the Sheriff of Nottingham as a goat. Uh, it's like an artistic experiment because he wanted to try different animal villains. He was like, we always make them the same animals. Let's make it something different. Uh, but Reitherman was like, no, 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 we're doing a wolf. That's the villain archetype animal. We're just doing a wolf. Also, originally, Friar, Ch- Friar Tuck was a pig. Uh, But they changed that to a badger because they didn't want to insult religious sensibilities, apparently. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Supposedly. Uh, So I've read multiple different things on this in the same IMDb trivia section. This first note said that in order to meet deadlines, animators had to reuse stuff from older films. Uh, They included, like you said, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, uh, the Jungle Book, uh, the Aristocats, among other things. And a lot of that stuff is used in the phony King of England scene, apparently. Mm -hmm. Um, One of them is a dancing scene and some other stuff. Um, 
But I also read in that same section a different comment saying, actually, that's they don't reuse that stuff. They didn't reuse that stuff because it was quicker or cheaper or whatever. They reused it because they knew it worked and they liked it. And that it was actually took longer to redraw, like to basically draw. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know if that's true. I, I, I don't know. I had always heard it was like a budgetary. That's what I thing. had always heard. But I saw this other fairly highly like liked or upvoted uh-huh. IMDb trivia fact saying, no, it's actually because they, they just liked it and they knew it looked good. And they just were like, we'll just use this again. Um, because we like it and we know it works for what we want to do and then we'll just redraw and the, and so according to this comment they were saying or not comment you know IMDb trivia fact they were saying that it takes longer or just as long to basically redraw from a previous animation I was like I don't that surely that cannot be true I don't know true. if I believe I don't that. believe I, I was like <laughs> oh, there's somebody from Disney on here like no actually let me tell you it takes just as long to draw to trace over the old drawings as it and I was like I don't know Anyways, that was the thing I saw. If anybody knows, if anybody's like a Disney head and knows any more about that, uh, or where that like that fact where where they're they're sourcing that information from or what, I, yeah. I thought that was super um, interesting. My understanding about this entire era of Disney was that they were operating on like a fairly yes. shoestring yes. budget, which like, is what I, that was. Everything I saw supported that. Like all of the stuff I was reading supported that they were on shoestring budgets. They weren't doing really well. They were mm-hmm. on tight deadlines. They had to rush a lot of stuff. And so they reused old animations quite a bit. There was this, this one IMDb trivia fact that was fairly, <laughs> again, fairly good uh, uh, proportion of like upvotes versus downvotes. That was like, no, that's not true. I was like, I don't okay. that, but that was the only thing I saw saying <laughs> that. So I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> Uh, so this was the final Disney animated film that was uh, composed by George Bruns or yeah, George Bruns, who did Sleeping Beauty, Jungle Book, the Aristocats, a bunch of other ones. Um, very popular uh, Disney composer at the time. Uh, so then getting into some reviews. We got a bunch of reviews. Unfortunately, I'll, I'll spoil it now. We don't have an Ebert review. I went and looked in here, but we have his partner from the time we'll get to it. So Judith Christ, writing for New York Magazine, says, quote, It's nicely tongue-in-cheek without insult to the intelligence of either child or adult. She also said, quote, it has, class in the fir- it has class in the fine cast that gives both voice and personality to the characters in the bright and brisk dialogue and its overall concept. She enjoyed it. Uh, Vincent Canby of the New York Times wrote, quote, it should be a good deal of fun for toddlers whose minds have not yet shriveled into orthodoxy. And he called the visual style, quote, charmingly conventional, end quote, which seems like kind of middling praise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, David Billington of the Montreal Gazette wrote, quote, as a film, Robin Hood makes a comeback of sorts for the Disney people. Ever since the old maestro died, the cartoon features have shown distressing signs of a drop in quality, both in artwork and in voice characterization. But the blending of appealing cartoon animals with perfect voices for the part makes Robin Hood an excellent evening, evening out for the whole family. Uh, and then awarding the film four stars out of five, Ian Nathan. Uh, this is a retrospective review for Empire Magazine. I, I didn't have a year for this, but 
more recently, obviously, uh, praised the performances of Peter Ustinov and Terry Thomas, saying, quote, while this is hardly the most dazzling of animated features, it has the cut corner feel that seemed to hold sway in the 70s, mainly because Disney were cutting corners. The characters spark to life and the story remains as rock steady as ever, end quote. And then getting into a must, uh, some less favorable reviews, uh, Jay Cox of Time Magazine gave the film a mixed verdict, writing, quote, even at its best, Robin Hood is only mildly diverting. There's not a single moment of the hilarity or deep eerie fear that the Disney people used to be able to conjure up or the sort of visual invention that made the early features so memorable. Robin Hood's basic problem is that it is rather too pretty and good natured. And then finally, Gene Siskel, writing for the Chicago Tribune, again, uh, Ebert's partner back then, uh, gave the film one and a half stars out of force, describing it as, quote, 80 minutes of pratfalls and nincompoop dialogue and criticizing the animation, saying, quote, the quality is that of a Saturday morning TV cartoon, end quote. So Siskel was not a fan. You know, I, I, I will grant that the animation is pretty basic, like as far as animation goes. It looks like the other movies from that era. Yeah. Because that's what they were doing in that right. era. I don't, I don't know that I can even agree a little bit with 80 minutes of Pratt Falls and nincompoop dialogue. I don't know. But I we'll actually see how you feel about it, I think I guess. this was the first Siskel review I had read uh, because I, yeah, I normally just look for Ebert, what he had to say. I don't care about his Siskel. Nobody cares about Siskel. He was the one nobody cared about. <laughs> That's why he got replaced eventually by Roper. I think he died, but um, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> but he <laughs> was always the lesser of the two thumbs, uh, generally speaking, But um, or I guess the lesser of the four thumbs, whatever. Um, but yeah, no, I'm interested to watch this one, uh, but before we get to that and where you can watch it, uh, we want to remind you, you can support us on Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash this film is lit. Support us there for five bucks and up a month. You get access to bonus content. Uh, we're going to be doing Men in Tights. That was our runner up in the mm -hmm. poll. We will be talking about Robin Hood Men in Tights uh, as our bonus episode for March. Obviously, that'll be out after we do the main episode. Um, so probably towards the middle end of March, but uh, or definitely towards the end of March. But that, uh, that'll, be, that'll be a lot of fun. So we'll be talking about Men in Tights for the bonus episode. Uh, and then at the $15 and up level on Patreon, you get priority recommendation. I talked about that earlier. Everybody knows. Follow us on social media. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Where can people watch it? People know. <laughs> well, if you're listening to the prequel episode, they know. We don't get a lot of new listeners to prequel episodes. I don't feel yeah. like. <laughs> um, okay, well, you can check with your local library, see if they have it, or a local video rental store. Or your uh, grandma. Or your grandma. Yeah, or like um, your parents' I house. I mean, honestly, I can still like very viscerally see the VHS of this movie. I was at my grandma's house yep. in my mind's eye. Yep. Um, otherwise, you can stream this with a subscription to Disney Plus, mm -hmm. or you can rent it for around three to four dollars from Apple TV, Amazon, YouTube, Vudu, Redbox, DirecTV. AMC Theaters On Demand, or Spectrum TV. Yes, absolutely. Like I said earlier, I'm actually really interested to watch this because it's one of those Disney movies that I, I'm sure I saw it, but I Probably have when you were really little, yeah. zero memory. This is not even like, like Jungle Book I hadn't seen recently, but I had memories mm -hmm. of stuff from it. This one, nothing. <laughs> I got nothing you know, in my brain. I, I will say I, I have a really like fond soft spot for this movie. It's not like the most exciting groundbreaking thing, right. but I, I do have a big soft spot for it.
right, fantastic. We'll come back in one week's time. We're talking about Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, and the, the folklore it is based on. Until that time, guys, gals, non-binary pals, everybody else. Keep reading books. Watching movies. And, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.